Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 32. Got a quick update for you here. It seems that this past week, authorities acted on some type of information they received and were searching a pond for the body of Abby Patterson. Abby went missing last year from Lumberton, North Carolina, and we talked about her case in, I believe, episode 1 of our I-95 series. Now, they did not find anything in that search last week, but we're glad they're making an effort. That's all we have in the way of updates for you today, so we're going to get right to our story. This is the story of the disappearance of fishery observer Keith Davis. It has been said that commercial fishing is one of, if not the, most dangerous job. Some fishing areas are more deadly than others, but there's one particular job related to this multi-billion dollar a year industry that's particularly scary. And if someone does this job for a living, they're regularly putting themselves in harm's way far beyond what the average commercial crew member does. This job is that of the fisheries observer. Today, we're going to talk about some recent mysterious fates which befell a few of these special workers, occupying a necessary but precarious position in an industry fraught with danger from all sides. First, what is an observer? Well, An observer is someone who knows the business of commercial fishing and who also understands marine biology. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the fishery observer acts as the eyes and ears of the water, and they collect data from fishing and processing vessels as well as from the shoreside processing plants. They collect data on what is caught, what is thrown back, They also report on compliance with fishing and safety regulations. They take biological samples and report on the fisheries' interactions with marine mammals and seabirds and non-target sea life. The vessel owners and operators are expected to provide information to the observer when asked. They're also expected to provide accommodations the same as crew members and ensure the observer is working in a safe environment so they have the access they need in order to effectively complete their work. Observers are trained to keep disruptions to a minimum and to try to be as unobtrusive as possible. They occupy about 3% of the regulated fishing vessels at any given time, so it's not like they're on every vessel they are actually hardly a presence at all. Observers can work through a government agency like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA, or for a contractor. There are dozens of these observer programs all over the world. These programs are supposed to represent an effort to determine how well the fisheries are managing sustainability, conservation, compliance with the law, 
and safety for everyone involved. But this effort has not resulted in a habit of compliance or serious attention paid to conservation. This disappointing fact is evident in the tuna fishing industry. It's been well documented that tuna is being fished at such a rate that it's estimated that bluefin tuna populations, for example, have been reduced by 96%. The question becomes, what will those fisheries do when there's no more bluefin tuna? They're probably going to try to find something else to overfish. One thing is for sure, they're paying very little attention to this age-old problem of overkilling. They think of it with an attitude of, well, somebody's going to do it, it might as well be me. And this happens all over the world. Some of the captains and crews of these ships are so desperate to make a living fishing they will endure the dangerous conditions they face at sea in order to pay their bills. They'll gladly fish a species to extinction. And yes, they'll kill anyone or anything that gets in their way. So it's this type of environment that observers sometimes find themselves. Usually, they're young, educated idealists who are interested in helping the industry conserve this precious natural resource. They fully understand the possible implications of overfishing and they take their job seriously. But they're doing nothing but observing and reporting. They have no authority to tell anyone what to do, and even honest reporting can cost them their jobs or their lives, since there's a tendency on the part of many in the fishing industry to label observers as overzealous villains whose goal is to deprive hardworking men of their means of survival. Not that the pay for the average crew member is going to make them rich. On the contrary, many crew members are actually indentured servants who are kept in debt and constantly in a position to be obliged to work to service that debt. Many are migrants who are not properly documented on the crew list. So it's not abnormal for any disappearance to occur, nor is there a well-defined means worldwide of recording disappearances. Passports pile up in the closets of many a sea captain. Murder, suicide, accidents, it all happens, and there's no established method of tracking the loss of human life in international waters. There are lots of publicly available articles about the challenges observers face, which we're going to link some of those in the notes here for this episode, and it's astounding to read about what these people have to deal with. Crew members of these vessels are many times men who have past violent criminal histories. Nobody does background checks for fishing boats. Even the captains who are responsible for the safety of observers understand there are few to no consequences for anything happening to anyone on a fishing boat. This is an imperfect system, and nobody knows quite how to fix it. Into this system are subject... Keith Davis began his career as an observer when he was a young college graduate from Arizona back in 1998. You know, by all accounts of everyone who knew him, Keith was an easygoing but professional, very nice person who was interested in others, interested in other cultures, other languages, music from all over the world. 
he cared about the quality of life for the people who work on these crews, and he also cared about the environment. Over the years, Keith learned that the safest strategy on one of these tours, which could last for months on one boat, was to remain silent during the trip and quietly report what he saw to his employer, the MRAG Americas, which that stands for Marine Resources Assessment Group. While Keith made every attempt to remain on friendly terms with the crew of each vessel, he also knew that he had a job to do, and that job was usually considered at the very least a disruption and at the most a threat to the crew. But as a professional with many years of experience, he learned to enjoy his career. He was on the board of the Association of Professional Observers, and through that association, he was involved in drafting an International Observer's Bill of Rights. In between assignments, Keith spent time with his dad, traveling or hanging out together at their homes, which were right next to each other in Arizona. And Keith had many friends, especially those who were also observers or former observers. They had a lot in common. They often shared stories of atrocities they saw while on assignment. Like one time, Keith sent out a video showing four men holding on to debris in the water before being coldly shot to death. In August of 2015, Keith left for his newest assignment. It was on a large Japanese ship called Victoria Number 168. This ship also worked in conjunction with several smaller ships. Together, they would catch tuna and process the tuna right there at sea. The ship was owned by Japanese, operated by Chinese, registered in the country of Panama, and staffed by a crew of both Burmese and Taiwanese men. There were cultural and ethnic differences between those two groups of crew members, which created an even more vitriolic atmosphere than what would normally befall crews of this type. This operation was working about 500 miles off the coast of Peru. Now, Keith's only method of communication with the outside world while he was on the vessel was messages and emails facilitated by the captain of the ship. So while he couldn't provide much detail, he was able to get some information out at times. He emailed his dad, John, shortly after leaving port to say something wasn't right on that ship, but he would provide more detail when he got back to port. He'd also been sending images of instances of laws being broken, protected fish possibly being processed, and also, in those images, crew members are pointing at Keith, who's taking the pictures. September 10, 2015, was the last day Keith was thought to have been on board the Victoria 168. It was reported that he was discovered missing at about 4 p.m., and by the middle of the night, a radio call was put out. Keith's life jacket was still in his room, giving him slim or zero chance for survival if he had somehow gone overboard in the calm waters under the cloudless sky. The ship finally made it to Panama ten days later. The U.S. Coast Guard and the FBI were waiting, but they could do nothing. It was to be investigated, if you can call it that, 
by the Panamanian authorities. The United States authorities did observe, however, that the ship had been cleaned and painted in several areas, which they found suspicious. Later, a video surfaced that allegedly showed a crew member confirming that they did away with Keith. On Keith's laptops, U.S. authorities found an ocean's worth of data collected over the years. He chronicled not only the atrocities he'd witnessed himself, but also the recorded interviews and testimony of other observers. The last three weeks of Keith's life revealed the horrifying reality of the illegal fishing trade. He was documenting a technique that has been in use for a very long time. As we mentioned, Keith was assigned to the Victoria Number 168. That is what they call a mother ship. This ship services smaller ships called longliners. The longliners stay at sea sometimes for years. They do nothing but fish and store the fish they get. Then at times they meet up with the mother ship, at which point they offload their haul and the mother ship restocks their fuel and supplies. The mother ship collects the bounty and delivers it to port. Now, what Keith witnessed and documented through pictures was a practice of loading fish that had been slaughtered in such a way that they could not be easily identified. This way, they could catch the protected bluefin tuna, but disguise that bluefin tuna as some other type. In one image mentioned earlier, a crew member is accusingly pointing at Davis who's behind the camera. Davis had sent a message to a government fisheries biologist stationed in Hawaii, and in it he said, Tuna on this ship are coming up not gilled or gutted, but dressed, which meant the heads were off. How can you tell the difference between a big, big eye and a blue fin with no fins and head? He also said, The only blue fin I've seen out here, I have a photo. They started to transport over until I started to take that picture. Then they brought it back to their ship rather hurriedly. Keith also said he confronted the crew of both ships when he saw them dumping garbage into the sea. He took a video of this as it happened. Now, in order to send these messages, Davis had to use the captain's computer, so everything he did could have been easily spied upon. Davis could not but have been worried for his safety at that point, because right before he boarded the Victoria 168, he had spoken on the phone with his boss, who had warned him about the crew on that ship. There were tensions, he said, more so than they had seen on any other ships. After Davis's disappearance, the return to port and the beginning of the investigation The Panamanian authorities told the U.S. authorities to leave. After that, Panama stopped working on the case. They never shared a final report about it. And they don't have to. Will we ever find out exactly what happened to Keith Davis? You might think that what happened to Keith and the aftermath is unconscionable, almost too savage to believe could happen to anyone. But the problem with the Keith Davis case is that his case is the one that's gotten the most attention 
and it's probably because he was American. Observers from other countries and even crew members are forgotten about without even an investigation. Nothing happens because there is nobody to answer to. The company Keith worked for, which operates under the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission, did make some changes after his disappearance in 2015. Observers now are provided with two-way satellite devices they can use to send messages to the company without having to use the captain's computer. But that's just his company. Most observers are still languishing in the same atmosphere of intimidation. The Association for Professional Observers keeps a list of incidents involving observers, and from that page we found so many sad stories. Unfortunately, they all end the same way. No justice and a continuation of business as usual. We're going to go over a few of these stories so you can get a more in-depth understanding of the threats these workers face when they are there to do their jobs. If you want to read more, we're going to include a link in the show notes. In June of 2017, an observer named James Jr. Numbaru from Papua New Guinea, I'm just going to say PNG, was working on a Chinese vessel, the Fang Zhang 818, and he had observed the crew polluting the waters. Surveillance video did show James falling off the ship, and just prior to that, it showed him arguing with someone on deck, and also appearing to be disoriented. The crew did not make any attempt to search for James for three days. No further investigations were done. The authorities decided he must have been drinking, and his disappearance marked the fourth of a PNG observer in just seven years. One of those was a man by the name of Charlie Lassisi, who was on board the F.V. Dolores 838 in the Bismarck Sea in 2010. His remains were found in October of 2015 and matched through DNA. The remains showed that the body had been bound in chains before being disposed of. The investigation revealed that Charlie was murdered by six crew members, but during the investigation, the body could not be found, so the charges were ultimately dismissed. It was noted that he had observed the crew setting nets out when dolphins were present along with the fish they were trying to catch. Jay Howell, an American observer, was drowned after falling in the water while attempting to reboard his assigned vessel, the F.V. Westward, in September of 2007. A guy falls in the water and nobody tries to save him? Now, other observers have met their ends in the same way crew have, by ships capsizing or sinking or getting caught in a storm. Or sometimes, you know, it's an inherently dirty atmosphere out there. People don't bathe much. The ships are nasty. And if you get cut or wounded somehow, that could mean the end of your life. It would be rare for one of these ships to stop fishing to take one crew member hundreds of miles to port for a deadly staph infection or for getting injured or sick. They just don't do that. Keith Davis' loved ones and colleagues understand that it's more than likely he was murdered and also that there will be no ultimate justice for Keith's abrupt departure from this life, a life he lived with honor and truth. Unfortunately, he was surrounded by people who placed no value on honor or truth or his life. This is an industry, after all, in which annually 
illegal fishing eclipses legal fishing by at least 15%. It's out of control, and any efforts to curb illegal activity may be met with opposition, resistance, and of course, all-out violence. Don't forget, some of these ships and in fact companies are owned by the government of their countries. Keith Davis knew very well that observing was a dangerous, but in this day and age, a heroic way to earn a living. He enjoyed many aspects of his job. He liked being on the water. He liked meeting people from everywhere. He liked traveling. And he also liked having extended periods of time to relax at home. Keith contributed to a collection of stories by observers called Eyes on the Seas. And I'm going to read a short excerpt from that so you can hear in his words what he felt about his job. He said, It can be tough simply being the odd one out on board. Scenarios of confrontation and harassment are bound to arise. Though rare, I have even found myself in a few situations with no line of defense besides trying to remain calm, quietly documenting everything, and riding out a bad trip. We also found another interesting perspective written by a man by the name of Juan Velada from a piece entitled Dying in a Lawless Sea. That was posted on a blog called The House of Ocean. We're going to link it in the notes. In this piece, he talks about some of the same issues we've just talked about. And from his perspective as a professional in the industry, he expresses indignation at the careless attitude about these observer disappearances. He wants to know, where are the international media? Why aren't they denouncing this? He says, These disappearances cannot and must not be left unresolved. This is a question of responsibility to the victims' families, but also to ourselves. If we acquiesce to this impunity, we'll be sharing the responsibility, as long as we keep consuming tuna while asking no questions. And more crucially, by doing nothing about it, we're practically guaranteeing that this will happen yet again. That was Juan Villada. So we wonder, if the worldwide governments are not doing anything about illegal fishing, possible extinction of entire species, safety issues for crew members, unchecked pollution on the part of the fisheries, and of course the overlooked disappearances and deaths of observers, if the industry itself isn't policing itself either, what can normal people like you and me do? Well, actually there are things we could do, and if enough of us do it, we might make an impact. First, you can support the organizations that have made a commitment to fighting these practices. There is a nonprofit called Sea Shepherd, which directly confronts illegal fisheries, and they famously chased a trawler for 10,000 miles, ultimately ending in the sinking of that vessel, which was notorious for illegally fishing Chilean sea bass for years. While that ship sank, the crew were taken on by the Sea Shepherd crews, and the officers were arrested. The other thing you can do is to support legislation to help increase regulation and compliance. And our power, at least in the United States, is probably higher than most 
since we are the second largest importer of seafood. Since most of the seafood we eat is completely unmonitored, chances are the seafood we're buying and eating was fished illegally. If we make it unprofitable to illegally source the product, that removes the motivation to do it. Now, we could consider eating less fish and also refusing to eat fish whose original location, when caught, is not traced and accounted for. Because right now, we can't rely on the United States government or any government to responsibly care for our environment. They have all proven that they don't care. Like I said, there is so much information on this subject We only scratch the surface, and I hope it sparks your interest enough to engage in reading, discussing, and acting in some way to support reducing the danger and threats to the sea life and the workers involved. We talked about the disappearances and deaths of observers, but that's just one small part of the vast combination of actions, behaviors, and perspectives that are contributing to the widespread death of crew, of supposedly protected species, and ultimately of our entire sea ecosystem. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll talk again soon.